You are listening to the AI Ready Healthcare podcast. I'm your host Anirban. I lead a research group in Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany where we translate AI solutions to problems in image guided diagnosis and surgery. The purpose of this podcast is to connect the physician scientists and healthcare professionals with the advanced AI research from the Mikai Society. Here I talk to fellow scientists from both communities about the translational aspects of AI in healthcare. Opinion is whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together, let's make healthcare AI ready. How many years can a mountain exist before it's washed to the sea? How many years must some people exist before they are allowed to be free? How many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. How many times can a man look up before he sees the sky? How many years must one person have before he can hear people cry and how many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died the answer my friend is blowing in the wind the answer is blowing in the wind you are listening to a few selected verses of blowing in the wind by bob dylan and now we move to this week's episode of ai ready healthcare welcome everyone to the second season of the podcast ai ready healthcare it is a rather cloudy day here in darmstadt germany we are really really happy and excited to talk to someone who is not doing stuffs like we do the computer scientists we just say and stay and code but actually do things out there we have today dr indronil mollik from kolkata india he is a radiation oncologist in tata medical center so it is really a pleasure to have you here dr mollik thank you anirban it's a privilege for me to be in this very exciting podcast with you thank you for inviting me Absolutely and today I have with me my co-host Henry who would also like to say welcome to Dr. Molik. Hi everyone. My name is Henry. I'm today's co-host and I'm a research assistant in Evans Laboratory and it is a pleasure for me to have you here today. Absolutely. So Dr. Molik typically we start the podcast with the question of knowing a little bit about our guest, who they are, what are the years of their becoming where they currently are and how they have reached there so so i am from kolkata i am one of those few people who have the privilege of coming back home and working from home 
I grew up in Kolkata. I, uh, you know, attended medical school in the medical college Kolkata, which is the oldest medical school in Asia. And then I did a post-graduation in radiation oncology in another city called Chandigarh. So Kolkata is in the east of Asia. Chandigarh is to the northwest of India. And then after that, I worked for a while as a trainee in um, uh, the city of Mumbai in one of the larger cancer hospitals in India called uh, Tata Memorial. Following that, I did a fellowship in radiation oncology, specifically in head and neck cancers from the Princess Margaret Hospital, which is one of the largest hospitals uh, in Canada, in Toronto. When I finished my fellowship, there was an opportunity to come back home. So I did that. So I joined a new, very ambitious cancer hospital that was starting up. Uh, so I, I got the chance to, you know, join with some colleagues to get it started. And uh, it's been, uh, you know, 10 years since the hospital has been functional. So uh, I work as a radiation oncologist. In fact, I work as a clinical oncologist, which means that I do both radiation and systemic treatment like chemotherapy in certain cancers. All right. Thank you very much for the nice introduction. It was very comprehensive. So maybe to start with one of our first questions to you, what does a typical day for you in your clinical routine look like? So my day usually starts with, you know, an inpatient round. So I have a few patients who are admitted. And then I typically have, you know, outpatient clinics uh, three or four days a week, where in a typical day, me and a team of uh, trainees would see about 70 to 80 patients. And the remaining time is spent in, you know, radiation oncology practice. You know, radiation oncology involves, uh, you know, delineation of the tumor and, you know, normal tissues on uh, scans. And, you know, there's a, usually a, a radiation plan made on them, uh, which determines how much dose goes to which part of the body. And we would then evaluate the plan, modify the plan, and then approve it. And then, of course, there's a surveillance of patients who are on treatment with radiation to check, you know, their side effects and how their tumors are responding and things like that. Wonderful. So I guess this is... Uh... Quite a difficult, I guess, routine for you to to really balance research time after doing your clinical work. So, what really motivates you to actually engage on extra research work beyond your daily clinical routine, which is already quite tiring? Well, I think that there's, uh, you know, physicians are often very interested in research. It stems from the fact that, you know, medicine actually is a very dynamic speciality. There's very little that remains the same as years pass by. So we always have to adapt and change according to new, uh, you know, interests uh, of many medical, uh, you know, physicians, including myself, is to actually uh, document, you know, the features and the outcomes and see how They impact patient care so that we can continuously improve, continuously move the field and continuously make it better for the patients that we treat. I'm not alone, actually. I think that there are loads of you know, physicians who are typically engaged in research. In India, it's not very easy to do this, I accept. But I'm lucky to work in a hospital where this is not at all atypical. So there's, there's many of my colleagues who do some, the same thing that I would do. Wonderful. So I guess 
when I see that you are like one part of it is basically the radiation oncology and then you are doing image guided radiation therapy. You mentioned already head and neck tumors, also GI tracts. So can you tell us briefly the, like you already mentioned about the delineation, you about, about the dose planning, but can you tell us a bit of a like typical softwares and process that you currently use and where you see the potential of AI actually coming in and benefit in such pipeline? So as I mentioned, radiation oncology is heavily dependent on images. So we would use typically CT as a backbone, but often fused MRI images, fused PET-CT scan images. And our job, one of our main job is to accurately delineate the tumor as well as all the normal tissues around it that might get affected by the radiation. This is typically done in target delineation software. And then this software is usually incorporated in the treatment planning uh, software packages that are available. These are packages that are sold to us. And these usually have a treatment planning module. And these modules can then decide where the beams will be directed from, how that beam will be modulated in order to give a dose of radiation to a specific area while sparing dose to the normal structures around it. Typically, this software would be able to compute what would be the best beam arrangement, how much time the beam would be on in order to get a certain dose distribution inside a patient. They would use mathematical formulations like gradient and things like that. So that sounds like uh, there is already a lot of automatization happening on the software side. So would you say that there is still potential for uh, further automatization in this process? Or would you say that there is a saturation already happening? No, I, I believe that there is a great opportunity to further automatize processes. You know, we spend a lot of our time delineating the tumor and the normal tissues. So even after several decades of doing this, humans are imperfect. There's a lot of inter-user variability. There are now, you know, deep learning-based softwares which are being developed, which automates the segmentations that we use in our clinical practice. They are relatively new. They are not widespread in the market and they have the capacity to get better. So a lot of research is going into that. And we are also trying to start some research on those lines. Similarly, for when we go and evaluate a plan, once it is ready, we typically use our judgment. But as you know, you know human judgment can fail. We can you know, be distracted. We may not read all the data points carefully. We don't have very good objective sense of how good a plan could have been. And so we've done some research in our department that enables us to use a library of previous plans to decide whether the plan that is being demonstrated to us by our medical dosimetry team is as good as it could have been. These are small things, but they all, if you add them up, there's a tremendous potential to improve things. And there are other areas where which have not even been explored. For example, when a patient is on treatment, we typically take images very frequently to make sure the patient is in the right position or whether the organs in the body are exactly in the same position so, so that whatever you know, highly conformal plans that we have made are delivering those in the right place. But we can use those same images to actually get temporal view of how a tumor is behaving and things like that. And these are areas which have been explored to a, a great extent. So there's, I believe, an enormous potential to use uh, imaging and imaging research into every aspect of radiation oncology. 
Yeah, that's really a wonderful view of the potential research. And I would say rather like what you say, I totally agree that probably the research there is already at the very nascent state of beginning rather than being already developed. That's really wonderful. So you have in particular interest, let's say in head and neck, GI tract. So can you tell us a little bit about the uh, typical things that you face for a head and neck tumor where you, let's say, sort of wish immediately that, okay, this is the particular thing where I could have really used some AI softwares or is it more like the general for head and neck tumors you feel like, okay, so there could be a lot of potential? No, uh, for practically every tumor site, and if you're talking about head and neck, you know, each tumor site has specific questions. Because the different parts of the body are different, the clinical questions that AI could answer would be different for different tumor sites. In the head and neck scenario, I would like to use AI for example, to predict if a big tumor that I'm treating, you know, uh, the, the response to any treatment, including radiation therapy, to a tumor is highly variable. Got big tumors which can melt with radiation, smaller tumors that can be resistant to radiation. We know only the tip of the iceberg in terms of how their genetic makeup or how their, you know, imaging characteristics could, could influence how well they will respond. So the big question in head and neck cancer would be, if I am faced with a patient who has a large tumor, for example, should I attempt curative treatment? On the other hand, try to cut down the side effects of the treatment and go towards a more palliative approach. Uh, The second question would be that, can I use AI to predict the side effects that this patient is going to have? And the side effects in head and neck cancer would be uh, you know, mouth dryness or so xerostomia. And I would use, for example, AI to look at the parotid glands to see is this type of parotid gland more likely to get uh, damaged by the radiotherapy. I would try to predict which patients are likely to require a feeding tube during treatment because throat mucosa would be, would be damaged. So for each cancer site or each part of the body, the, the questions are slightly different, but they all center around trying to predict certain aspects in order to make patient-related outcomes better. You know, one of the challenges that we AI-related literature is that it's mainly focused around metrics. It's focused around numbers. Is, is my, you know, dice coefficient better? Is my concordance index slightly better? But we are not asking the question as to whether this improvement in the dice coefficient or the concordance index or for whatever it is, is actually going to help the patient. Is it, going to, is it going to make the patient live longer? Is it going to reduce the side effects and improve the quality of life of the patient? So the questions are not really patient-centric. And I think that we need to work together instead of the research being or the technological advances being centered around numbers, it should be centered around the impact on the patient. And there needs to be, you know, greater collaboration between clinicians and, you know, data scientists to make that happen. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing up this point. This is really, really one of the core issues of 
my motivation for starting and doing this podcast actually this is uh, mikai uh, the society where we all basically belong those computer scientists who work on uh, medical imaging ai in medical imaging that's the premier society and this is the exact problem that you mentioned that we are happy with average performance and improvement in average performance without caring whether that particular thing is even benefiting any patient and this is really why basically having you as a guest is so wonderful because you really brought the point back that really it has to benefit the patient benefit the pipeline otherwise there is not much point in doing research in this we could have been doing uh, machine learning research we should not be doing medical imaging research really so thank you so much for bringing this point i have a more nuanced question to ask you because one problem that we face as a community is that typically most of the data sets are not available and when even when the like the images the scans are available the annotations are not so basically as a community unless you have access to a doctor who is really willing to do the annotations and see things move forward we as a community end up with solving the problems for which only public data sets and annotations are available so how do you really see this sort of back and forth feedback loop between healthcare and the computer science community i think you have pointed out a very important issue and i believe that we also realize as clinicians that some of us clinicians who have some idea about the challenges that data scientists face i believe that you know the training data sets are one of the biggest challenges and properly curated annotated data sets are difficult to get you're typically restricted to the data sets available in the for example in the cancer imaging archive or few other resources like that and there needs to be many more a few years back our department felt that we need to use the clinical data and the clinical images that we are using to treat our patients in order to augment these archives and together with some collaborators in another institution called the Indian Institute of Technology or IIT in Kharagpur we had a funded project where we built a, an imaging archive of our own and this was the brainchild of one of my and what we did was that we felt that in addition to just the imaging or even the imaging and some clinical and imaging based annotations or delineations we need to have you know follow up information we need to have radiotherapy dose information and we structured our database on that so it's a it's a radiation oncology focused imaging archive that we are building we typically treat about 2000 2200 patients a year so even if we can add about half of those images into this imaging archive of some sort and if we can get other institutions who are also treating patients with radiotherapy contribute the radiation data and images then we we will be able to build a much bigger archive multi institutional data sets are important as you know what we are also focusing on we are trying to set up research projects where one of the core things is to get very very standard curated delineation and data collection 
of patients, which means that if I'm going to, you know, contour or delineate a particular organ, it has to be absolutely spot on for all the 300, 400 patients in that subset instead of uh, being lazy on that front. Because unless we do that, I don't think that no matter how good a data scientist is, how good a deep learning scientist is, they are not going to be able to generate good results. We also feel that it's important to be multi-institutional because there will be imaging characteristics between different scanners, et cetera, which will be different. And these are challenges that are really, you know, yet to be solved because my understanding is that most of the models that are built on single institution uh, data, they, they are generally models that are probably overfitted, so they don't work as well on other data. And you basically hit a hurdle as soon as you've published your first paper with a great metric and then it doesn't work. So it's never used in, in actual clinical practice. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's actually very nice to hear that such efforts on collecting joint data sets of multiple institutions exists. So uh, what would you say are the uh, biggest logistical challenges in collecting such large data sets and collaborating with other institutions to gather that data? I think the challenge mainly is walking the talk, really, <laughs> you know, in the sense that theory, most institutions are very willing, they, they buy into this idea. But the challenge is at the level of implementation and taking the permissions and developing the pathway in which the, the, the images will be uploaded, making sure that all the de-identification takes place, making sure that the structures that are delineated have common nomenclature doing pre-processing so that when you download that data, you are not dealing with very different imaging sequences and things like that. So there are technical challenges and we are just at, you know, starting out in the discovery and, and you know, of these challenges. But I think that these challenges can be overcome. I think that people are far more aware of these challenges. Clinicians are far more aware of these challenges because of the uh, the visibility that machine learning and AI now have in uh, clinical practice. All right. Thank you very much for elaborating. I would now go on to the second block of our podcast, which is the COVID-19 pandemic, because this is what currently keeps us occupied, keeps us thinking about things. Yeah, I would maybe just start with the first question on that, especially on the role of COVID-19 in India at the moment. India, there basically have been uh, two waves of COVID-19, where the second wave is still ongoing. Yeah, what was your experience? How would you say did the first and second wave develop and how did things in general develop there? So uh, India, as you know, has been one of the main victims of this pandemic. I believe that when the pandemic first hit India February or March 2020, we had some benefit of the experience in China and in the United States and in the UK. So we were pretty good right at the start, locking down early on. And so late March 2020, there was a, a lockdown which was planned for three weeks and uh, it seemed like a good step. That lockdown was a very strict lockdown. It did keep the numbers down for a while. And then in the absence of any further information, I think that what happened in India was that the lockdown was probably carried on for a bit too long. It started affecting people's livelihoods. People said they didn't know what they were going to do in terms of earning money or taking care of themselves. But because the numbers were not very high, at some point, the administration 
felt a bit overconfident and we opened up a bit too much near the end of the year. There were, you know, too many gatherings. There were elections in a few states. There were religious gatherings. And we were directionless, I felt, in many places. And when the second wave hit us, we were not prepared. We didn't spend enough time in 2020 preparing ourselves in terms of building up infrastructure, in terms of ramping up hospitals, in terms of ramping up, you know, healthcare personnel. And in many places, we were caught completely unaware. So the second wave was devastating. I don't think there is a single person in, in the country who hasn't lost a couple of people who they know very closely. And there's talk in the media about underreporting of deaths. There's talk in the media about underreporting of COVID numbers. The extent of that underreporting is difficult to gauge. But we found that the country really went through one of its most harrowing times in its history. So I guess from what you are saying, it's basically we can take a view of the bigger picture, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. But before going into there, I really wanted to know a bit more about your professional slash personal experience of the practice, because I heard from multiple practices in UK, US, that they are saying that, or they are reporting that operations, uh, the number of scheduled surgeries, they had to bring it down. The number of visits for the oncologist went down. There was a general sense of scare of visiting hospitals. And how does that actually affected your day-to-day experience as an oncologist? That's an interesting question. In, uh, when, we, when we had the first lockdown in, in 2020, it was a sudden lockdown without any notice, so to say, for the patients or for the, the hospitals to prepare. Um, because public transport was just stopped, a lot of patients could not reach hospital. We were lucky in our hospital because most of the patients who were undergoing treatment continued to take their treatment. They didn't get so badly affected that they couldn't come anymore for treatment. So in fact, we did an audit of approximately 2,000 records of, of patients who were supposed to come to our outpatient clinics and who were getting treatment with radiation therapy and chemotherapy. And uh, we found that we were able to continue treatment for the vast majority of our patients, so more than 90% of the patients who were on treatment. But the patients who would come back for follow-up in the outpatient clinics, they just couldn't come. And we had to make that up or compensate for that by you know, doing uh, phone consultations. Later on, the hospital could set up a video consultation practice and and we tried to do video consultations with as many patients as we could. What we did find, though, was that, you know, a lot of our patients started falling sick with COVID-19 because in the second wave, I believe the variant that was spreading around was uh, far more infectious. So a much greater proportion of the patients on treatment became ill and this resulted in some disruption of their cancer care. And we lost some patients to COVID-19. On a bigger scale, what happened was that patients who were newly diagnosed with cancer could not seek medical attention. They were locked into their homes. 
And all over the country, we are now witnessing the fact that many of the patients who are now turning up as newly diagnosed cancer patients have been basically not attending or visiting doctors early enough. So they are in an advanced stage. Many of them cannot be offered curative treatment. Even if they are offered curative treatment, their treatments are much more complex because they are in a more advanced stage of disease. And this has enormous implications in a country like India, where many of our patients are not well off and they have less capacity for support in terms of family members helping them in the midst of a pandemic because, you know, family members cannot travel. So it's, it's a bit of a humanitarian disaster, I would say. Uh, I don't think India is the only country which is facing it, but, but we are seeing it and experiencing it firsthand at the moment. Thank you, actually, for bringing the human perspective of COVID-19. I guess one recurrent theme that we realized during the pandemic is numbers somehow hide the actual people they are suffering and healthcare is as human as it gets, right? And somehow we ended up in a, such a messy situation. Every country, as you said, got affected by some proportion, but somehow for India, it's a really terrible situation that I guess happened, of course, like everything else due to multiple causes. But if you are really to take, I don't know, three most important points where as a society or as a political, where were the main reasons of failure that led to such a disaster? I think that the biggest takeaway is that we have never invested in public health. I think that India as a country has completely failed its people by not investing enough in public health care. As a result of that, uh, there's not enough resource or infrastructure for diseases or for the care of conditions where there isn't a lot of money to be made. So all the, the resources are bunched up in big cities. There's not enough healthcare resource outside the major urban centers. When patients are faced with something acute, like a bad you know, pneumonia, like as what happens in COVID-19, and if they have to travel from a village to a city 150 kilometers away or 200 kilometers away, that is a failure on part of the government machinery. There's also not enough investment in training the doctors in handling medical conditions or medical emergencies. We are underprepared. We don't have the knowledge of acute care, which is very much a part of any healthcare system. One of the other big revelations to me was that we have never taught our doctors how to evaluate evidence critically. So one of the things that India did terribly wrong was that it invested a lot of its time and resources into the prescription of medicines which do not work. And the reason why it was done right from the government level, from, from the union government level to the state government level to the level of private practice is, is simply because we did not teach our doctors how to evaluate the utility or the actual clinical benefit of medicine. 
we were way too dependent on marketing by companies, way too dependent on furious information coming through the social media. And that has actually harmed the population quite a bit. We need, really need to focus on these things a lot better in the future to make sure that this isn't repeated. So what would you say are maybe short-term measures that could be implemented to make the potential third wave more manageable? I mean, now that India currently is on the decline of the second wave, or maybe even disruptive changes that happen in the short term? In the short term, I think that the availability of you know the common basic minimum things like oxygen in every part of the country is very important. I believe that it's important for the vaccination to move as fast as it can. It needs to be far more proactive uh, from the government in terms of going door to door, I would say, if they have enough vaccines instead of centralizing it to certain centers and expecting people to come there because many people are, are really quite helpless at the moment and they may not be able to go to vaccination center. Trying to not patient process to tech dependent, uh, but trying to move as fast as possible. I think that these are some of the things that uh, will probably help us the most at this time. Because Henry asked the short term, so I have to ask the long term. And especially you talked about sort of failed public health. Sometimes uh, the doctors don't have the necessary skills in terms of evidence-based medicine. These are like the, the both or the all three points that you actually mentioned are massive infrastructure and people-focused changes. These are really, really, how to say, concerted effort of generations to get better. How do you really think that this can be implemented in a scale as big as India? Yeah, that's a challenge, isn't it? I think that we have to rethink many things as we go along. I believe it is possible to change or focus on the right thing. For a very long time, India has been kind of divesting its healthcare responsibilities. The government has been divesting its healthcare responsibilities. It really needs to go the other way. And I think that it is possible. The government does have the money. If you look at the healthcare you know, allocation, our allocation is one of the lowest in the world in terms of percentage of our GDP. So we need to increase healthcare spending, make sure that uh, medical government medical facilities are available, start building more government hospitals, spread them around outside the major urban centers. Uh, the, the challenge, I think, is, is the fact that because the economy has been so badly hit, There'll be too many people or too many, uh, you know, demands for the government's money from different, you know, stakeholders. You know, the industry is going to demand, the education industry is going to demand, the, the tourism and the transport industry is going to demand. But the healthcare industry also has to demand its fair share to make sure that lives are not lost. I guess... Um... Sort of like when you said that, I was also thinking about it that somehow healthcare, of course, is an industry, but not in any way the traditional sense of the industry. Like we feel that government sort of has an obligation to its people to bring a minimal level of healthcare. Now, if I think from that perspective, I guess it really also depends on those who are at the top of, I don't know, the healthcare 
sector, how well respected they are across the society, that brings a different message. So, I mean, during the pandemic in US, we saw Anthony Fauci and how like you might agree, you might disagree on many of his policies. But one thing that he had is sort of overall like a very respectable attitude from the entire society. Like when I look back at India, I had the trouble of identifying one person who has an equivalent stature. Do you think that somehow is affecting the healthcare as being the forefront of where government should be investing? Yes, I guess that that is a big challenge. I, I do agree with you that, that we don't have an equivalent of Tony Fauci in India. Uh, it, it's also been a challenge that the, the government leadership has not investing its faith in such a person or trying to identify such a person to lead. And, and many of our you know, so-called healthcare leaders at the moment are, are really not epidemiologists or infectious diseases experts. The people whose opinions are being sought are from different fields than the, the fields that should be, be more focused on. All right. I guess since we are moving towards the last part of our podcast, I wish we could have talked a little bit more, but I guess we have to move on towards the last part. So let's say COVID-19 will end in one way or another. So in the post-COVID-19, radiation oncology will be, I guess, somewhat different than it was before. At least people will think with a different perspective than how people were thinking before. So what do you think that the most likely changes are and how do you think the digital health, AI, this kind of technology, whether do you think that this will be instrumental in the post-COVID-19 situation? Let me answer your question in two angles, so to say. If you look at the radiation oncology practice in general, there is a potential for significant change in the post-COVID era. So during the COVID pandemic, the practice changed to incorporate shorter treatments, tried to look at, you know, uh, rationalizing or, or identifying really how frequently does a person need to come back for follow-up? What are the innovative ways in which people can practice uh, from home, for example? So if you incorporate all of these things, there is a potential for AI to come in in order to identify patients who could benefit from shorter treatments in terms of developing systems where we could do follow-up based on automated systems using natural language processing and conversational interfaces, for example. Uh, there would be a large-scale automation of several steps of the radiation oncology pathway so it has focused our attention on how to kind of get a minimalistic view or how to get a much more efficient view of the entire process that we are dealing with. When we look at that same question from the Indian perspective, it becomes a little bit more difficult in some respects. One obvious difficulty is that in India, we don't always have very robust connectivity which means that if you're trying to develop a system that is very data heavy, like plan running somewhere or a, an AI system working in the background, we are really dependent on good connectivity, good backbones. When we are trying to communicate with patients uh, through automated interfaces, we are faced with certain challenges of language. 
only a small percentage of our population are comfortable in conversing in English or interacting in English. So if you're going to develop an interface to communicate with them in terms of finding out how they are without having a doctor on board, then you need these interfaces to work in other languages. But I think that in India, there is an increasing of oncologists who understand data and understand imaging and its applications and how they are going to turn out in the future. So I have a feeling that India will really be one of the nations where you will see a lot of movement on these lines. And I'm hoping that some of us who are really interested in this will be able to form that work together and, and address specific challenges that Indian patients will face. So our, our, as I mentioned before, our focus should be towards helping the patient rather than deriving, you know, the pleasure of, of just developing a system. We need to develop a system that actually helps the Indian patient in their journey through cancer. Mm, so you've identified several challenges for bringing AI to clinical practice in India. So what would you say are the major steps to take, like the requirements that have to happen to really make that feasible? I think that one of the, the biggest challenges is in the language, as I mentioned, and even in a technical field, for example, in radiation oncology, the technologists who actually deliver the treatment, they are not particularly good in English either. So we really have to focus on language. And I think that one of the things that I would, I am hoping for is that, you know, language models get better. Because if we can automate communication in India, that would be one of the biggest benefits that we can give our patients. Because patients really spent a lot of money, a lot of sacrifices to come to the hospital when often they don't, may not need to. So that's one aspect. In terms of automating systems, I think that our goal should be to fix to understand the way things work in India in order to, to make the pathway of data and the path of bringing back the results of a model easier. We have to set up federated learning environments so that we can actually learn from different hospitals without going through the bureaucracy of getting permission to transfer and de-identify data. So these are, I think, offhand some of the things that I, I, I think might be beneficial. Right. Thank you so much. I think we really have, of course, a lot of challenges that we identified today, but that also means there are many, many interesting research problems as well as technology, uh, health tech problems that where we can work on. And those of our listeners who are trying to develop technologies, uh, healthcare technologies from India, and I think uh, many of the other countries in Southeast Asia, in Gulf, they will get a lot of information to really build and rethink and restructure their thoughts into attacking the sort of problems that can actually bring benefit to the patients. On that really positive note, Thank you so much, Indranil, for taking your time. It was really, really a wonderful time we had with you. It was really nice talking to you. The same here, Anirban and Henry. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. And I'm really hoping that we can remain in touch and work together 